Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 208, Revisiting Vladimir the Great. Last time, we reviewed the new information I've learned over the past 10, almost 11 years, about the time before the Rus after listening to a repeat of episode 1. Today, I will share what I've gathered about one of the most prominent leaders of the people of his time, Vladimir the Great. One of the most significant problems we have with early Russian and Ukrainian history is that we have to rely mostly on one source, the Primary Chronicles, also known as the Chronicle of Past Times or Tale of Bygone Years. And it's something that I relied upon when I first did the second episode. Allegedly written by a monk named Nestor, who lived between 1056 and 1114, it is supposed to be a compilation of first-hand accounts of the history of the land of the Rus, starting in 852 with the arrival of the Varangians, led by Rurik. There are numerous provable errors in the work, especially with chronological mistakes. An example is that the appearance of the three Scandinavian brothers in 852 coincided with the ascension of Byzantine Emperor Michael III. Problem is, Michael was crowned on January 30th, 842. Now, we have to understand that the Chronicle was written to provide a positive story about the beginnings and history of Kievan Rus. As Russian imperial historian Alexei Shakhmatov once wrote, quote, The ruling princes of Kiev had their own propagandists who rewrote the annals to make political claims that best suited their own purposes. Because of this, much of what we know is best taken with a grain of salt. The ascension to power and the rule of Vladimir the Great falls into the time frame where we rely on the Chronicle. In order to better understand what happened in this era, we need to speculate and interpret what we know into a richer history than is available from the writings. One attempt at this was made by Vladimir Volkov, author of the book Vladimir, the Russian Viking. He tries to give us a glimpse into the mindset of all the people of the time and the man who is among the all-time favorite characters of Russian history. As he puts it, quote, It is difficult to fathom the hearts and minds of historical characters, yet the attempt must be made. Now we're going to replay episode 2, Vladimir the Great and Sviatabalk the Accursed. After it, I will share with you some of my new insights into these two men. Also, this will be a two-part series. Next episode, I will continue adding to the growing information on Vladimir and his successor, Sviatopolk I, Vladimirovich, also known as Sviatopolk the Accursed. But before we start, if you're interested in more Russian history, become a patron at patreon.com slash russianrulers. So, for as little as $3 a month, you will pretty much guaranteed two new, unique episodes, and there are already over 20 available. Right now, I'm covering one of the most tumultuous years in Russian history, 1917, in a multi-year, multi-part series. So, without further ado, episode two.
Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode number two, Vladimir the Great and Sviatopolk the Accursed. Last episode, we talked briefly about who the Rus were, and we met their first leaders, starting with Rurik and ending with the victory of Vladimir I over his brother, the ill-fated Yaropolk. Today's episode, we're going to cover two Russian rulers, Vladimir the Great and Sviatopolk the Accursed, two vastly different men, one who improved and molded his country, the other set the stage for the eventual end of the influence of Kiev and the onset of the Russian Dark Ages. A few of my historian friends wondered why I wouldn't just do an episode on Vladimir alone, since his influence on Russian history was as great as anyone who would come after him. My thoughts are to show the differences between these two and point out how these differences helped make Russia what it would become. Or, as Winston Churchill once said about it, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Vladimir Sviatoslavich, known as Vladimir the Great, or Voldemir, as the Vikings would call him, was born in 958 as the result of a liaison between his father, Sviatoslav I, and a housekeeper, Malusha. Sometimes in history, the term the Great, following someone's name, is oftentimes presumptuous, but not this time. Vladimir was to make decisions that would influence Russia to this very day. Having finally ended the war with his half-brother Yaropolk, Vladimir worked on consolidating his power. Shortly after he seized the city of Kiev, a band of Varangian mercenaries demanded payment of one pound of silver for each citizen of the city. Vladimir, recognizing this as the first and most dangerous threat to his hold on power, used his power of persuasion to convince the Viking band that they should turn to Constantinople instead, as the riches there were just far greater. This ability to negotiate and influence people would serve Vladimir well over the years. Vladimir is known throughout history as the man who brought Christianity to his country. But he was not initially a pious man. Oh no, Vladimir was anything but. He was thought to have had over 700 concubines, as well as countless wives. His selection of wives included Vikings, Slavs, Czechs, Greeks, and Bulgars. His royal consort, who stayed with him for many years, was Rogned, the daughter of the Viking prince of Polotsk, Rogvolod. This was a marriage that was to produce Yaroslav I, also known as Yaroslav the Wise. The joining of Vladimir and Rogned was not your classic courtship. Anything but that. It was one of the oddest ones I've ever read about in Russian history. Vladimir fell head over heels in love with Rogned, but she didn't reciprocate. She wanted to marry his brother, Yaropolk. Instead of being happy with the courtship proposal, her father, Prince Rogvolod, insulted Vladimir by saying there was no way he could have his daughter's hand as he was an illegitimate son of a slave woman. This enraged Vladimir, already well known as a pretty much a hothead. He did what any good Varangian would do. He got his army together, raided the prince's town of Polotsk, killed the prince, both his sons, 
and took Rognet back to Novgorod and married her. This stuff you just can't make up, folks. Having many wives was not uncommon amongst the upper class and Vikings in general. The pagan religion they followed had no barriers to that. Paganism was pretty much the religious belief followed by most of the population, and after Vladimir's victory over his brother, he erected many statues of the favored gods, especially Perum, the god of thunder and lightning, Svarog, the father of the gods, and Strybog, the wind god. Not only that, he had almost 1,000 people sacrificed to the gods to celebrate the victory. It was at this point that Vladimir began to wonder about his chosen religion. He remembered the teachings of his grandmother, Olga, and asked his advisors to bring him emissaries from the major religions of the world to present their case. Kiev, the heart of Russia, was a vibrant city with numerous religions present. There were Khazar Jews, Byzantine and Catholic Christians, Muslims, and of course, pagans. Oftentimes, Vladimir would meet with the elders of these various religions, not only for personal reasons, but also for his people. This was a time of numerous revolts and a time of ambition, ambitious expansion of his realm. The main focus of Vladimir's gaze was south, towards Byzantium, and the city he wanted was Chersonesus, a port town near present-day Sevastopol. The only thing holding him back was a treaty between Kiev and Constantinople. An opening came in 988. Vladimir was asked by Byzantine Emperor Basil II to help crush a rebellion led by rogue general Bardas Phokas. Vladimir sent 6,000 of his finest and fiercest warriors who would be crucial to the war effort. But there was a catch, and yes, you may have guessed it, and involved another woman. Princess Anne, Basil II's sister, was what Vladimir wanted. With little choice because of the impending threat, Basil agreed. But as soon as victory was achieved, he backed out, which of course angered Vladimir again. Basil, trying to stall as Anne was not thrilled about marrying the rogue Russian, said that he couldn't abide by the deal because Vladimir wasn't a Christian. Vladimir answered by attacking and taking Chersonesus. The city gave up with little resistance. Still, he knew that it would behoove him to be at peace with Basil, as the Byzantine Emperor Empire was still very much a force to be reckoned with. It was at this time that Vladimir sent out envoys to find the right religion for himself and the Russian people. First to make a presentation were the Hazar Jews. When questioned about their history, they admitted to being driven out of Jerusalem, which caused Vladimir to retort, You are trying to teach others, you whom your God has punished? He would not have done that if he loved you or your laws. Obviously, Vladimir was not impressed, and they were sent away. Next up were the Bulgar Muslims. The idea that every good and worthy Muslim male upon entering heaven would be attended to by 70 virgins was very appealing to Vladimir, but the strict restriction of pork and alcohol wasn't tolerable. That would be an extremely hard sell to the hard-drinking Russians. Another no, and away went the Muslims. 
Following them came emissaries from the German Emperor Otto III to extol the virtues of Roman Catholicism. Their appeal initially was met quite positively. The deal-breaker was that the supreme leader could not be Vladimir. It was the man at the head of the Holy See, the Pope. This was something that the ambitious and power-hungry Vladimir could not accept. Next came the Byzantines. This was an important deal for Basil II, as he needed this important ally because of the numerous outside threats to his empire. They sent their best priests to convince Vladimir that Eastern Orthodox Christianity was the only choice for him and his people. One issue sparked his interest, the fact that the nation's ruler was also the head of the church. This doctrine fit Vladimir to a T. Still, this was a big decision, so Vladimir sent envoys to review the ceremonies and practices of the various religions, except for Judaism, which he dismissed outright. And this could be part of the uh, anti-Semitic feelings that, you know, bounded through Russian history. So it might have started at this point here. Well, envoys who returned from Germany were not thoroughly impressed by Catholic rituals. Returning from the mosques of Bulgaria, they reported that the mosques were unclean and their religion was, quote, no good. This was an entirely different reaction to the one given after the Russian representatives came back from the most magnificent city of that time, Constantinople. The Emperor Basil II pulled out all the stops. The incense flowed and the choir sang as the pagans entered what was the most magnificent building in the world, the Hagia Sophia, the Cathedral of St. Sophia. Returning to Kiev, the emissaries spoke in awe of what they saw. They were quoted as saying they did not know whether we were in heaven or on earth. We only know that God dwells there. In 988, Vladimir, no doubt influenced by the teaching of his grandmother and soon-to-be Russian Orthodox saint, Olga, was baptized, which caused the reluctant Princess Anne, sister of Basil II, to leave the comfort of Constantinople to join Vladimir in the relative backwater city of Kiev. Vladimir went about the forced, although not difficult, conversion of his people. All pagan statues, many of which were built by his order in 980 to celebrate his ascension to the princedom of Kiev, were removed, destroyed, and cast into the Dnieper River. What made the conversion easier was that relatively few people actually idolized the pagan statues. Also, it was obviously easier to convert than to feel the wrath of the temperamental Vladimir. But what he did next was nothing short of sheer genius. Grand Prince Vladimir decided that religious services for his newly found faith were not to be held in Greek, but in native Russian. This made the religion much more accessible to the people, as opposed to the Catholics who held their services in Latin, not the native language of the people. Since there were already many Russian-speaking priests in Kiev, and the fact that Constantinople gladly provided bilingual priests, the conversion process moved forward. Over time, because of Vladimir's decision to russify his church, Russian Orthodoxy 
which shed much of the Greek influence to become a truly unique one, one that I'm personally a member of, hence part of the reason I love Russian history. It was Russian Orthodoxy that I was born into 969 years after Vladimir. Now, one consequence of this choice of Orthodoxy was the future isolation from the Roman Catholic Europe, especially during the Renaissance. Now, here's a dis- you know something outside of history, but a suggestion I'd like to make to anyone to add to their bucket list or list of things you must do before you die, and it's to go to a Russian Orthodox Easter service. Be prepared, though. It is long, usually around four hours or more, and it starts late, around 11 o'clock at night, but it is a ceremony to behold. It was this ability to survive one of those Easter services that endeared my non-Orthodox wife to my parents. The next reform that Vladimir took on was the building of schools and the promotion of reading in the native Slavic language. Vladimir shed his concubines and numerous wives in favor of Anne. But if you think that all has changed Vladimir, think again as he wanted more land and power. He also wanted to crush the nuisance that was the Pechenegs. In 1007, he routed them, and in 1015, with Vladimir nearing death, his son Boris also soundly defeated them. Before we go further, a little background on the Pechenegs, or Patsenaks, as they appear a few times in early Russian history. They were a nomadic Turkish tribe, which first came onto the scene somewhere around the 8th or 9th centuries. Their name has two possible meanings. The first is a Turkish nation living around the country of the Rum, where Rum was the Turkish word for the Eastern Roman Empire or Byzantine Empire. The second is that it means a branch of the Oghuz Turks. Whatever their origins, they were also somewhat warlike and were a constant thorn in the side of the Kievian Rus. After defeating the Pechenegs on July 15, 1015, 35 years after his ascension to the throne of Kiev, Vladimir the Great passed away, leaving his empire to his 12 sons and many half-brothers. This was to lead to yet another civil war, this time led by Sviatopolk. His name for the history books was to be Sviatopolk the Accursed. The bodyguards of Vladimir wanted Boris to ascend to the throne, but he declined as he knew he would have to fight his brothers, which he did not want to do. He was very, very religious. But this was a fateful decision. Sviatopolk sent out two teams of assassins to kill both Boris and another half-brother, Gleb. Both were murdered while at prayer, which helped elevate the two as the first Russian Orthodox saints, Saints Boris and Gleb. Sviatopolk seized control of Kiev with only two half-brothers left to deal with, Mstislav of Tumu-Torokin and Yaroslav of Novgorod. Yaroslav was furious with the murders of Boris and Gleb, while Mstislav, he was just content to solidify his defenses. Now, there are some who would suggest that this anger was a show, as in the saga of Amund, it was suggested that the Varangians in the service of Yaroslav actually committed the murders. 
It is the primary chronicle that accuses Sviatopolk of the crimes. The primary chronicle, or Nestor's chronicle, was written by the monk Nestor around the year 1113. It is about Kievian history from 850 to 1100 as our best insight into the history of the time. How much of it is true? Well, we're really never going to truly know. Yaroslav began to gather his forces for the showdown with Sviatopolk. Upon hearing of the impending invasion in 1016, Sviatopolk made a deal with neighboring Poland, a Roman Catholic power who wanted to supplant the Eastern Orthodox Church with Catholicism. At first, Yaroslav gained the upper hand and seized Kiev again, but was quickly ousted by the army of the Poles. Sviatopolk made a fateful error, though, by forcing the people of Kiev to house the Polish army in their homes. The people, furious with this decision, began to systematically murder, likely with the encouragement of Yaroslav, many of their house guests, which caused the remaining Poles to return to their homeland. By 1019, Sviatopolk was in dire trouble, which, after being forced out of Kiev once again by Yaroslav, caused him to turn to the pesky Pesheneggs for support. They turned out to be poor allies, as they betrayed Sviatopolk as to not suffer the wrath of Yaroslav, who they saw as a much stronger and deadly threat. Sviatopolk was summarily killed, and Yaroslav promptly assumed the throne as Grand Prince of Kiev. Next episode, we follow the life of Yaroslav I, also known as Yaroslav the Wise, to the end of Kievian dominance. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please either visit the website at RussianRulersHistory.com or join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast page where you can leave a comment, make a suggestion, or ask a question. Also, there is a Russian Rulers iPhone app out there that you can purchase at the iTunes store, and it would just help pay for the podcast to try not to do too many advertisements, as you might note. So, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое. So, we've covered a bit about Vladimir in this past episode, but I was woefully remiss in sharing so much more about his time in life. Today, I begin to make amends. We begin with a look into Vladimir's youth. While we don't have much written knowledge about it, we do have some inferences about what likely was occurring in his life. In the original episode, I only gave Vladimir's early years a single paragraph, again, woefully inadequate. While I pointed out that his mother, Malusha, was a housemaid, and this was very important as his two brothers, Yaropolk and Oleg, had mothers who were far more highborn than Vladimir. Additionally, Vladimir was the youngest of the three brothers. The idea of primogenitor wasn't set in stone in Viking culture. It was an important issue, though, when you look at the line of inheritance, and it would lead to civil war. We first hear about Vladimir around the year 968, when he was a mere 10 years old. Pushkin describes the Kievan landscape at the time. Peaceful is Ukraine's night. The sky translucent, the stars gleam. To drowsiness succumbs the air. The silver poplar's leaves are barely shivering. The placid moon shines on high, and all is quiet, quiet everywhere. 
A few years later, the Pechenegs, which was a very strong rival of the Varangians and the people of the Rus, and they were threatening Kiev, having surrounded it in creating a siege. The great prince at the time was Sviatoslav, and he was away in the south of Peryalslavitz, which is a few hundred miles away. There was another Kievan force nearby, led by General Pritich. Still, it was a smaller force, nowhere near large enough to hold off the sizable Pechenegh horde. There's a legend that a young boy, younger than Vladimir, jumped into the Dnieper River next to the city and made it to the camp of General Pritich and warned him of the dire situation the city of Kiev was in, and especially the peril the family of the Grand Prince Sviatoslav was in. Pritich was able to fool the Pechenegs, making them head off. This was likely to have greatly impressed the young Vladimir. Had this not happened, the Pechenegs could have overrun the city, controlling the land of the Rus, and, if they were able to stay in power, convert the Russian people to Islam, a religion they would adopt in the near future. Olga, Vladimir's grandmother, was at the time trying to influence her son and the Rus people, that the Christian religion led by the Byzantines were the way to go instead of following the pagan gods of the Varangians. While Sviatoslav would have none of this, he wouldn't take that, Vladimir was very likely influenced by her devotion. When the Byzantine emperor Basil made Olga uncomfortable when she was in Constantinople, she, being a wise diplomat, sent an envoy to the court of the king of Germania, Otto I, asking for him to send the bishop of his church to Kiev. The person they appointed to the task died before he could even leave Frankfurt. His replacement, Adalbert of Trier, along with his entourage, were unwelcome. Adalbert was lucky to have escaped with his life after he arrived in Kiev. Many in his mission were not so fortunate. What I missed in the first go-round was the important central location that Kiev had. Let me share what Volkov writes in his biography of Vladimir. Quote, Land roads not as safe as water ones, but still used whenever the weather would permit, formed a knot in Kiev. The main one, the route of the caravans, stretched as far as Western Europe and through Mainz, Prague, Krakow. Kiev wound its way to the shores of the Caspian, Arabia, India, China, lay beyond. East of Kiev, it was known as Zalozny Road. Another one went to the Crimea. It was the salt route the Soloni. Another came from Warsaw and northeastern Europe, and another one went to Kursk. Yet another one linked Kiev with Bulgaria and Constantinople, the capital of was still known as the Roman Empire. Not only foreigners traveled these roads, the Russians themselves were renowned merchants at the time, and they were seen as far as Baghdad, if not further. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's revisiting of the early life and times of Vladimir the Great. Join me next time as we continue the story, ending with the life and times of Sviatopolk the Accursed. So until then, Basvidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.